You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on John Kasman. John is the founder of the Kasman Capital Group, which is dedicated to busy professionals to invest in real estate and without taking on a second job. John, since the founding, has raised over $90 million to deploy in real estate. But most importantly for his investors, he's created passive income, reduced their tax obligation, and ultimately helped foster generational growth. He also is the host of Target Marketing Insight, multifamily and marketing. So we're going to learn a lot about marketing from John, but is also the co-founder of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. In his former life, he was a marketing executive at General Motors, PepsiCo, Miller's Corps, P&G. So this man has tons of knowledge that he's going to drop on us. So I will stop there and just say, John, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having me on the show today, man. I'm excited to be here. A couple of points I just want to clarify. We've helped investors get into $90 million worth of real estate. I haven't raised $90 million, but soon, soon we will. But uh, we helped them get into $90 million worth of real estate. And yeah, man, my background's in marketing. Spent a lot of years, 15 years, working on some of those major brands and campaigns. And I've taken some of those insights and used that to help transition into real estate. Awesome. Awesome. So, John, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Man, listen, that's a great question. It's not difficult for me. My favorite ice cream is cookies and cream flavor. I love it. Um, I'm sitting here with my ice cream right now. And I don't know if you know Graders. Okay, I'm, I'm in Cincinnati now. And I'm from Cleveland. So there are a lot of things about Cincinnati I'm not necessarily sold on. But Graders is not one of those things. It's amazing ice cream. And uh, my wife picked up some ice cream the other day for the boys, and I'm absolutely eating their ice cream. So this is not cookies and cream, but cookies and cream is my favorite ice cream. I love it. We were chatting about this before the show. My dream is to go do these live in person and both eating a bowl of ice cream. So you're one step ahead of me. You are a trendsetter there. (laughs) We asked the controversial topic, though. Toppings or no toppings? No toppings, man. Okay. Well, I mean, in fairness, my favorite one is cookies and cream. So my toppings are already kind of built in. Yep. But yeah, no toppings for me. Okay. Well, tell our listeners the scoop. What do you do today? Well, right now I'm eating ice cream, but <laughs> you know, uh, we work with investors as we talked about, right? So our whole thing is really helping other families. To give you a little context, I came from from marketing, from business, and I was at General Motors when we went through the last recession. So I watched some of my peers get let go. You know, I, I spent most many days wondering about my own job security. And as I started to plot through like, okay, but well what happens if I do get let go? And how do I find another job? And you know, all my experience up to this point has been in automotive. So how do I diversify my own experience? I started to realize that there were multiple moves I needed to make. One was diversifying my employment history so that, you know, I could be more employable. I didn't want companies to look at me and say, yeah, he he looks good, but he's only done automotive, right? I didn't want to get pigeonholed based on one industry. And then the second thing is I couldn't rely on a W-2. So I knew I needed to create passive income or income through another revenue source so that I had other means available to me just in case either a company decided I was no longer a fit or I decided a company was no longer fit for me. So I started investing at that point. We can talk more about that in a minute, but in short, I help other people join me on those kind of deals now. Yeah, so did the light bulb go off for you in 2008, 2009, when you were in Detroit and saw everything that was going on there? Or did were you just an investor from the beginning and all that? 
I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad while I was in college. So I think it helped me understand the way money worked in a way that I, I didn't really understand prior to that. So I think I always had that mindset of, hey, we need to build something for myself as well. Part of my challenge was there was no way to kind of take the automotive industry and, and build, pivot off of it, right? I couldn't, I wasn't going to start my own car company. I wasn't going to try to make rims or whatever. So I didn't see how that experience was going to allow me to, to you know, move into entrepreneurship um, in an organic way. With that said, I mean, when that happened and just being at the center of it, it absolutely made me think of all those things. You know, I really spent a lot of time just thinking about the people you know, and a lot of my colleagues and what they were going through. And fortunate for me, one, I wasn't really impacted. I never missed a paycheck or, you know, was not let go. And I actually thrived through that time frame. I got recognized as one of the uh, top marketers and advertisers in the country by Black Enterprise Magazine. And I had other awards and accolades, right? So I actually did really well. But it also showed me that it wasn't real. I was a cog in the wheel. And Whatever ego I thought I might have had, it wasn't real. And marketers in corporate America, they get in the feelings. You know, they, they start to read the clippings and they start to feel like they've they've done something. And it's hard. You know, when you're hanging out at the Super Bowl or you're, you know, you're you're hanging out at maximum parties and you're doing all these cool things, it's easy to feel like you're doing it, right? And and I had to realize that it wasn't about me. It was the Pontiac ad manager or the Buick ad manager who was there. I just happened to be filling that role at the time and it was never about me. So when you understand that, it made it a little bit easier. And I would say so many people define themselves by their jobs or their career that when you take that job or career away, many people have a hard time figuring out who they are. It's like an identity crisis. And I learned that as an intern, I had a guy tell me that early on. He was like, hey man, don't make a mistake here. The stuff I'm doing, the traveling, the hotels, the five course meals, all of that stuff, it's for the title on the business card. You want to work so they do it for the name, your name on that business card, not just the title you hold. So I, I never really lost track of that. And I think 2008 cemented that for me. I watched people who had those titles get let go and cards get reshuffled. And I knew like, hey, you better build your own because even great people. I mean, I saw one of the senior directors, senior vice presidents. Well, she was great. They told her she was going to be reassigned to Shanghai. So I was like, it's not just about getting let go. It's about controlling where you live and, you know, not playing the corporate game. And just for me, I respect the heck out of people who, who want to do that. But for me, I wanted to have more control and more flexibility. And I try to help other people do the same. Yeah. And I mean, this is super impactful for me because most of our listeners know in 2016, when my real estate journey began, I was supposed to receive a life-changing commission check from a company I used to work for, not the company I work for now or the company I've spent a majority of my career with. And I got the call from the VP at the time that was like, hey, we're not going to pay you that. I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, Matt, how much money did you make this year? Tell me again. And I told him, he goes, isn't that enough? And it was at that point where I was like, oh man, if I don't control my financial future here, then I'm always going to be tied to someone else working what they want, when they want, and they're going to pay me whatever they choose, not what I choose. And the impact I want to have in my community and the legacy I want to leave and things like that is not going to be dependent on someone else. The second thing that you said there was 2008. And in 2020, I saw a lot of people that I know that have nice watches, have nice shoes, have nice boats, have nice houses and things like that all of a sudden wake up and the people to the right and to the left were gone and they were starting to really reevaluate their situation. So your willingness to help people build passive income streams so they can stand on their own and their legacy is, is super helpful. 
Where did your real estate journey begin? I think mentally I was, I knew I wanted to invest in real estate, but at the time I was still in Detroit and we're talking about 2009, 2010. And everyone I knew who owned real estate in Detroit, and I was actively seeking these people out, they were trying to sell. I mean, they, they were scrambling. So I, I didn't have the confidence going in at that time to start investing in Detroit. So for me, I ended up moving to Chicago the following year for the reasons we talked about, trying to diversify my corporate experience. And then also I wanted to invest and I, I knew investing in Detroit at that time was going to be more challenging. At least that's what I thought. You know, so I moved to Chicago and I house hacked my first property. That's where you buy a, a two unit. You actually do it with a two to four unit, but I bought a two unit building, lived in one unit, rented out the other unit, and that worked extremely well. And for any young person who is starting to earn a steady income and trying to figure out the right step for into real estate, I strongly encourage you to consider a house hack. Depends on your market and all those kind of things, but you can get some great rates from uh from a loan standpoint some great terms and it's just an easier way to get in you know you only have to put three and a half percent down if you do an fha loan and for many people you're gonna either break even or make more money by living in one unit and renting out the other than if you just pay rent so it's a great way to get started so that's what we did and then the next property was a three unit then we bought an eight unit building and you know we started building some momentum and the challenge for us was we were spending all of our money we being my wife and i we're save our money, buy a property, save our money, buy a property, not to mention actually trying to manage all of this while we were working as full-time professionals. And we started having our children, right? So we started building our family. So we had a lot of stuff going on. So here we are two busy professionals trying to build this real estate portfolio because that's what I read. And that's what people told us to do. And uh, we kept spending all the money we were saving on real estate. And I just felt like, I mean, certainly have the portfolio to show for it. But I didn't feel like we were making the change in our lifestyle or setting ourselves up where I was insulated from demands of corporate America or I had that flexibility I was looking for. So I had to step back and say, hey, you know what, I've got to change something. And ultimately, that's what led me down the route of syndication. So when you first house hacked in Chicago, were you already married then? Yes, we got married and moved to Chicago. Yep. OK, was she on board with that? She was. And one of the things I always tell couples is like you have to align on your goals. You know, and it doesn't have to be real estate that like real estate is not a goal. It should not be your goal. OK, your goal should be, you know, financial freedom or time flexibility or vacations or whatever you want. Right. Like very few people want to own just bricks. <laughs> so focus on the things you want and then figure out how do you get there. So those were conversations we had early on, even when we were dating was what do we want our lifestyle to be like? You know, how many kids do you want? Like all those kind of things, right? We had to create this life together and then put a plan in motion to get there. And for me, real estate felt like the most secure way of doing that. I wish I was like super techie and I could come up with an app and boom, you know, put it out there. And next thing you know, we got a unicorn valuation and, you know, Scrooge McDuck, right? But that's not me. Smart, but not techie smart. So I felt like real estate was the most tried and true, most proven method for the average professional to accumulate wealth in this country. And that's what we set out to learn about. So we attended events together. We read books together. We listened to, I don't really think there were that many podcasts back then, but we listened to whatever information we could. And we both educated ourselves. And we would sit and we would talk and we would go in and come up with strategies. We saved money together. So all of those things were really us approaching it together until we got to the point where 
we decided to focus on other aspects with our family, but we were always in lockstep. And I would say the key to doing that is focusing on the goals and then asking yourself, well, what's the right way to accomplish these goals? Yeah. I read a quote one time that was talking about when you're looking for a partner, make sure they have the same values and are going the same direction. Cause ultimately the person I am at 34 is remarkably different than the person I was at 22, which is remarkably different than the person I was at 16. Right? So we're going to grow, we're going to evolve. And you have to know that somebody's headed in the same direction as you are, uh, and has the same goals that you do and values the same thing that you value and et cetera. So I love that. Um, you, You've mentioned in the past that she's an active part of the real estate business as well. Do you have any tips for anybody out there that is trying to invest with their spouse or they're trying to figure out how they divide responsibilities and things like that on how you all have been able to do that? Yeah, she's a little less active now, but we we spend a lot of time building the business and she kind of helps me behind the scenes with a couple things here and there. But, you know, one of the biggest things is getting clarity on roles and responsibilities. You know, if you're both trying to do everything, it can get frustrating. You can, you know, if you're both trying to underwrite deals together, like that's challenging. So get clear on roles and responsibilities. Who does what? You know, what are you good at? What is what is the other person good at? And make sure you're both not just doing things you're good at, but things you enjoy. Because you can be good at something and hate it, <laughs> and that's not going to be fun. So make sure you understand those two things. And I would say also recognize that just because it's the two of you, it doesn't mean it, it has to only be the two of you. If both of you hate underwriting, just to use this as an example, if both of you hate underwriting, find someone else who can, who can help underwrite. They don't have to be a full-time partnership, you know, or anything like that, but maybe you outsource that, you know, maybe you pay someone to do that, or maybe you find someone who's young and hungry and scrappy, and maybe that's the value they can add to the team, but you don't have to take on tasks that you don't enjoy, but you can find a way to outsource. And right now there's so many resources available between Upwork and virtual assistants and, and things like that, where if there's a task that neither of you are either particularly good at or don't particularly like, outsource it. Don't make it so difficult on yourselves to slow your growth because neither of you wants to take on a task. So I would just step back, recognize what needs to get done, try to create processes that you both agree upon. And if there are things that are either, you know, getting caught up and you find things that are being bottlenecked, find a way to outsource that or figure out how you can deviate that work or delegate that work rather. I want to tie off with you later and talk about that. Cause I feel like that's where I'm at right now is I'm doing a lot of things that I know how to do, but I know I need to outsource them because that's not where I have the greatest and highest use of my time. Uh, and I think you said it best around, it's one thing to be good at something. It's another thing to enjoy doing that something. If something's really heavy for you, it's probably best that you don't do that. Cause that's going to affect different areas of your life as well. If you continue doing those types of tasks. Yeah. And just real quick on that front, like I, I tell my coaching clients this, but when you face that situation, one of the best things you can do is document your process, right? If you document your process and I, I would just start by recording, right? Just turn on your Zoom or whatever and record your screen and just talk, you know, and just talk through whatever it is, whether you're underwriting, whether you are, you know, taking notes on investor calls, whatever it is you're doing, it doesn't even have to be real estate, but whatever it is, document it and then write out what those steps are. But if you document it, there are things that you're going to remember that, you know, if, if you don't 
physically document that process, you may forget, right? So something as easy as uploading this podcast episode, you know, it might be, you know, if you're writing this, you might say, hey, you know, take the video, take the audio, you know, do this, upload it to, you know, the server, put the show notes in, like, you're going to just tell the steps, but you may miss the little detail of, hey, when you do it, make sure you click the tab that says this, and be sure to hit the save as draft. Like there are little nuances that you just kind of do on almost autopilot that if you had to teach somebody else how to do it, they may have to stop you like seven times. Wait, wait, what'd you just do there? Uh, what's the login? Where did you go first? Where, where do I find this document? So there are things that we just do and we stop ourselves. And all entrepreneurs say this, by the way, they say, oh, it's just easier to do it myself than to train someone else. And the reason is you don't take the time to actually document that process. So just record your screen or record yourself, even if it's just your phone, but record it because at that point, at least you can share that video or that documentation with somebody and say, hey, here's how I do X, Y, Z, watch this and then reach out with whatever questions you may have. And that's going to save you a lot of time. So that's one thing you can do if you really want to delegate something off your task and get it to someone else. Beyond Zoom, do you use anything else for that? Out of curiosity, like I've seen Loom out there to record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I use QuickTime actually. QuickTime is easy. You can use that, and I mean, um, Loom is great. You can Loom is a great resource. I don't use it, but I've had people use it. And then I've also just literally just pulled my phone and just hit record and turn the camera on me. I mean, it just depends on the task, right? If they need to see the screen, QuickTime or Zoom is good for that. If it's something I'm just documenting or telling people, or I'm showing someone something. Again, it just depends on what the task is, but just record it and document it is what I would say. Yeah, I'm trying to get to that point. Um, I'm borderline dyslexic, so I, I, it's heavy for me to write and to read, but it's easy for me to kind of talk through things. And I'm to the stage, I read this the other day, it was something like, you don't need people to do things the way you do them as much as understand how you think and empower them to do it the way that is most effective for them as long as it gets done. Now, certainly tactics on how do you do something you need them to do step by step. Um, but if you're trying to lead an organization, they just need to know how you think so that they're empowered to make the decision on the front line. And video is much better at demonstrating that for me, at least, than me trying to type out an email or something like that. Yeah. And I think too, like there's so many little details that get lost in the written language versus documenting either the audio or the video. And it's, again, it's nuances because for instance, if you're trying to underwrite a deal, you might, if you're documenting this, you might say, Hey, you know, when you underwrite, go look for rental comps. Okay. Well, I got seven questions just on that. Where do you go to find rental comps? How do you know it's a true rental comp? What are you looking for in the rental comp? Does a year of construction matter? Like I got so many questions, right? So even if you document it, hey, go to apartments.com and find rental comps, like there's still so many things. So by doing it as a video, I think you have a trigger to yourself now when you're finding a rental comp, why this one and not that one? Now you can tell them, hey, well, the reason I like this comp instead of this one is it's got, so at least you have these triggers for yourself or for someone who is on the other end, they can watch that video and then they can point it back to you and say, hey, at this point, you talked about the rental comps. Why did you pick these three and not those two? Yeah. So those are the kind of things that make it a little bit easier versus if you just hand somebody a, a file that says, hey, here's the, the guide or the manual. Maybe I'm a little intimidated to come to you and say, hey, I don't really understand how you pick this or that versus 
having something I can clearly identify to say, hey, at 32 minute mark, you call out XYZ, where'd you pull this information from? Man, you are dropping knowledge on me that I need. So thank you for this. This is super impactful for me and I hope our listeners as well. I wanna get back to real estate and you mentioned growing your portfolio. So the two units, the three units, you got the eight units. And then at a certain point you start capping out your limits. What made you decide to go towards multifamily versus the other niches out there? You know, I was always sold on multifamily. Every book that I've read on real estate, and maybe this is just <laughs> the books I've read, but they were always talking about multifamily. And everyone I read said, oh, I wish I got into multifamily sooner. I wish I didn't start with single family. So for me, I was always sold on multifamily. I just didn't know how much I could scale or would scale. In my head, scaling meant buying a, a 12 or a 20 unit, right? If you go back in that time. So when I bought the eight unit building, I was both ecstatic, but I was also really concerned because that eight unit, one, I wrote a, a check that was as much as my annual salary. And then I looked at the prospect of having to go and save a full salary again before I can make another investment. And I got depressed, you know, and I'm supposed to be excited just did this big deal, commercial, I'm legit now, you know, it's like I got over a million dollars worth of real estate now. And um, I just was like, man, I don't like, dude, I got to wait another year before I can save. And that's, and again, to save that kind of money meant sacrifices, right? And I now had two kids who were in, you know, expensive hungry. daycares and, <laughs> and hungry. And, um, and I was like, the whole point of this was to be able to spend more time with them and not just like buy another job. And I felt like that's what I was doing. So that made me realize that there might be a better way to bring the capital necessary to buy these deals. And at the same time, you know, I had friends, some family members that were watching us and saying, oh, that's great. You know, how, how'd you do that? How'd you buy this property? And I would start to tell them and I'm super excited about it. And they would just like their eyes would gloss over and they're like, oh, OK. I'm like, yeah, just read this book here. Check out this podcast. And I would just give them all these resources and they would be like, yeah, I'm not going to do all of that. And it dawned on me that there are a lot of people who want the benefits of being an apartment owner without the headaches of being a landlord. Very few people want to sign up for the headaches that we signed up for, you know, who want those, those tenant. We didn't want the tenant calls either, but we're, we're comfortable to manage those tenant calls. We were comfortable to deal with repair issues. We were comfortable to just really embrace all the things that it took to be a real estate investor. And many other people treat investing as I'm going to give my money and I want a return, which is quite frankly, the way most investors think. And there's nothing wrong with that. We had bought a second job. So at that moment, I really started to pivot to say, you know what, I, I do think there's some inefficiencies here. And when you think about scaling up into the larger properties, well, now you can get professional property management companies. Now you can actually have enough uh, money, enough equity where you can give investors a return, take a little bit for yourself and have everybody have a win-win situation. When you're doing a three-unit property, there's not enough there to make it make sense to give a return to an investor and for yourself. I mean, even if you split it 50, 50, what are we talking about at that point? What 200 bucks a month, hundred bucks a month, you know? So do you want to do all that work for 200 bucks a month? Like that sounds crazy. So when you start to pull it all together, I think for us, it really started to pivot into 
yes, still multifamily, but we need to scale. And thankfully for us, we found resources, mentors, things like that to help us grow. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's a saying out there, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a team, go together. And I, that's essentially the principle I'm pulling out here is that we live in a world where the value you can bring is the team and the resources you can bring, not necessarily your individual knowledge. And that's changed over, I would say, the past 50 years because of the advent of the internet, Zoom, phones, being able to connect with people easily and things like that. So if you're an investor or if you want to get into real estate, but you don't want to manage property and things like that, there are options out there. And John is a perfect example of he'll handle the property maintenance. He'll handle running the property managers and get you involved in these bigger deals. I used to think that you'd see a skyscraper downtown with someone's name on it and you're like, oh, they must own that. And it's like, no, they put the deal together. There are other investors that are a part of that, et cetera. So, um, move to syndicate or bring people together through capital and resources and things like that, you had to pick different markets to go after. And I think you're pretty brilliant on identifying not just the big primary markets like Chicago, New York, Detroit, and things like that, but the sub markets that really are the backbone of the American economy. Can you give us any tips and tricks if I'm, if I'm living in a city that I'm not price advantage. I live in San Francisco and I can't be a part of deals there. How I can evaluate which markets I could get involved in? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's uh, there's two ways to look at markets and you started to allude to this, right? There's the the big city, the New York, the Chicago, the Detroits, the Miamis. Uh, we call that the MSA, right? The Metropolitan Statistical Area. So the big city market. That's great. And there's a lot of good things to figure out there. You may hear of certain markets being uh, hotter than others. Right now, DFW, Dallas, Fort Worth, it's a very hot market. Orlando, Florida, very hot market. Um, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, very hot market. So there are great markets out there. But I would argue that the sub market for most investors, the sub market is actually more important than the, the macro market. And a reason for that is, in every city, you're going to have parts that are desirable and parts that are undesirable. And if you just invest in a city because it's a big city or you hear that it's on fire and it's a great city to be in and you just pick any neighborhood and just buy whatever, well, guess what? You may be in an undesirable part of town or maybe you're you're paying way more than others would pay for the neighborhood you're in. Or maybe your business plan doesn't match up with what people are looking for in that area. So you really have to understand the sub market level. And very few people have that level of, of knowledge. But I'll give you a couple of tips on how to figure that out. And if anyone wants to learn more, I do have a, a document available that I can share with you um, at the end of the episode if you stick around. And it will give you 35 resources to help you find the best places to invest. Okay. So one of the things that we like to do is find the path of progress. Okay. So write that down if you're a note taker or whatever you got to do to remember that, but find the path of progress. There are lots of ways you can do this, but I'll give you a couple of things to look for. One, uh, find the hottest part of a city, right? So if you're, especially if you're in a, in an urban area, Find the hottest part of a city. We're not going to look there. That's not the path of progress. Okay. For the people who want to live there, but rents are a little too high, where do they go next? Look just adjacent to that hot neighborhood. 
And where does that overflow go? And then understand why the overflow chose that place versus the other places they could have went to overflow. And then you'll start to see the path of progress there. Another thing you can do that I love to do, especially in Chicago, um, is look for two anchors, right? So in Chicago, you've got, you know, a city that you've got a north side, you've got a south side, you got a west side. So if you're looking at the south side, those two anchors might be downtown, right? You got the whole downtown core. But then you might go down to, say, the University of Chicago on 67th Street, right? So 67th, then up north. Well, you know, the University of Chicago is a great anchor, right? That's always going to attract people there. And if you go between there and downtown, well, that's a great path of progress, right? So depending on what's there, but you're between those two anchors. And it's realistic to assume that there are people who want to be in between those two anchors. So if you can, and it depends on how your city's laid out, but if you can find those two anchors and be somewhere along that path, that's a great way to find the right the the path of progress. And then I've got I, those are two. I think I've got thirty some others uh, in this this resource guide. So I'm happy to share that with you guys at the end. I've never heard of the two anchors. That is brilliant. One of the things I look for is uh, parts of the city that aren't developed yet, but are putting in a hospital. Normally, I feel like a good anchor is a hospital. You've got a lot of different um, doctors, nurses, people like that, that probably want to live pretty close. But then they're going to start developing outsourcing uh, parts of the healthcare industry as well that will require more people, more jobs, and things like that. I'd never heard of the two anchors. I I really like that. That's super, super valuable. Are there any sub-markets or tertiary markets that you're looking at right now and very interested in? Yes, yeah, so I love the Midwest. You know, uh, we talked about some of the other markets right now, but I love the Midwest for a couple of reasons. One, the entire country is doing well. Okay, so most markets are seeing rental growth and, and multifamily doing well. So that's really a national thing. It's not like, hey, these three markets are growing and the rest of the country is is suffering. So the whole country is doing well from that standpoint. I like the Midwest because it's pretty stable. You know, and when you look at those economic downturns, the Midwest markets tend not to go as down as some of the coastal markets. Now, in fairness, they don't tend to go up as high uh, in the times times of uh, economic growth. But I like the fact that it's less volatile than some of those other markets, especially when you, you know, when you look at where you're at in the cycle. I think it's just really helpful to know that you can still get growth. You can still get appreciation and you can get cash flow. And when I say Midwest markets, I'm not just saying any city in the Rust Belt. What I'm saying is there are great growth markets like Indianapolis, Columbus, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Louisville. These markets are growing. They're attracting new jobs. They're attracting new residents. Population is doing well. There's development taking place. And you still want the core fundamentals. And I really like what those markets have to offer. When you look at those markets, again, we didn't want to get into the sub markets and understand, okay, now what part of this city is growing? Where do I want to spend more of my energy and where do I want to place my bets? And then you can you can factor in some of those kind of things. But I do like the Midwest markets. I think there's a lot of great potential there. And I think the downside risk is less prevalent because it's not being artificially driven up. I mean, and anything that's being artificially driven up is happening across the board. But I don't think you have people who are going to run out of the Midwest, you know, three, four years from now, whereas maybe in some other markets, if you know, if that demand uh, slows down at all, maybe they pull their money and they they go back to a different area. 
Yeah, I think uh, we connected one time around capital preservation more than anything. If you're listening to this show and you want to get involved in syndications and things like that, chances are you probably have a good W-2. And while it's great to grow at the rate that Dogecoin is growing in 2021, it's more important that you keep your capital in a safe asset where you're not really losing money either. Now, I'm not saying I would invest in something just to earn 0% and never lose money. Um, but the Midwest is that for me, when you talk about choppy markets like uh, Las Vegas, for instance, which is a hot tourism market. And if tourism dries up, really, they've got no other industry to back it and things like that, as we saw in 2008. The Midwest doesn't really have that. So um, great cash flow, maybe not as great appreciation, but you're not going to lose money and you're just going to earn that consistent, stable income. I didn't know that's how you said that coin. I, I thought it was Dodge coin. So I'm glad, uh, <laughs> I, I read it on Twitter all the time and I've never heard anyone say it out loud. So I'm happy to uh, understand it's not called Dodge coin. <laughs> I, I could be wrong on that. I don't know anything about Dogecoin, Dodge coin, or any, in, any insertcher coin here, et cetera. So I think one of the things that I see with people that want to get involved in real estate is they really haven't connected their why they want to get involved. And you touched on it a little bit with the Detroit in 2008. And as we talked about 2020, when some people were losing jobs and others, et cetera, how do you, how do you suggest people kind of find their why to, to get over that hurdle of investing in real estate and putting capital at risk? Well, I mean, you can either find it or it can find you. It's it's your choice, right? So like I said, I mean, for me, I was interested in real estate. I was interested since college. I knew that most people, I mean, there's that old quote, right? Where 90% of the millionaires are, are made through real estate or at least hold some portion of their, their wealth in real estate. So I knew real estate should be a part of the portfolio. And I was interested. I mean, I was really interested in, in real estate, but it wasn't until that bankruptcy took place where I took my interest level from, oh yeah, you know, maybe one day to, you know what, I need to actively seek and build a plan to invest in real estate. So you can wait for something like that to happen to you. Uh, at that point, it's too late. Um, you see where the economy is as the time of this recording is still thriving, but many people would say, hey, we just had a huge recession, yet our markets and the economy is at an all-time high. The doesn't seem to add up. So will the other shoe drop? I don't know. And I'm not going to make predictions. What I will say is you owe it to yourself and your family to position yourself in a stable way to navigate anything that happens in the financial markets. Investing in real estate is a great way to do that because you have an income producing asset, unlike the stock market where yes, it's great. But if you really want to, you know, make your money, you have to sell that asset. You know, I mean, sure, you can get some of the dividends, but if you really want to take advantage of the gains you've made, you have to sell the asset to do that. And then you've got to pay capital, you know, capital gains tax on it. So with real estate, you're getting income. You can always refinance and pull out equity if you want. And there's different things like that. The other piece to it comes down to how much work do you have to do? You can invest passively. So if you are working full time, you've got a demanding W-2 job. You have other passions that you want to do because quite frankly, who wants to paint apartments on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays? Very few people want to do that. Who wants to take these calls and, you know, do all these other things as, that are involved? Very few people actually want to do these things. You'll do it for the money, but you can earn it and maximize your time. And I think that's really what people are looking for is how do I maximize my time? How do I get the most out of the money and put this to work? But I really want to maximize my time so I can spend it doing the things I enjoy doing. The other time I got I got kicked in the head 
was uh, actually my son's birthday. So I haven't shared this story with many people, but my son turned four. So I'd already been investing. I was committed at this point. I'm, I went from interested to committed, but I wasn't, I didn't reach my goal, you know? So I was still working, still building a portfolio and uh, I worked in marketing. So I worked in marketing for 15 years uh, for some of those brands you mentioned earlier. And I had to go on a TV shoot. You know, it was a newer client, first TV shoot with us. And the client felt very comfortable with me. And I'm like, that's great. I'm not going. It's my son's birthday. And the CEO said, John, you need to go. I said, I'm not going. He said, John, you need to go. And we had a standoff. And um, I tried to get anyone else to go. And there was no one else who was qualified. And it frustrated me. So I ended up having to go on the shoot. And I watched my son's fourth birthday on my phone through FaceTime. So I was there for his birthday party. Right? I didn't really miss the, the big activities, but I wasn't there on the, you know, the, this, the four year anniversary of his birth. So I was so frustrated that I didn't get to pick and choose where I could be. Cause up to that point, I had a lot of flexibility in my, my, my job. You know, I was a senior executive, so I could pretty much call the shots on where I wanted to be. So I didn't feel the pressure to be like, Oh, I gotta get out of here. And at that moment I was like, damn it, it caught up to me. And I'm here on set. I didn't want to be there. It may have shown, I don't know, but did my job it was professional, but the moment I could leave and get on a plane, I did. And I left and went home. And I just think for me, I realized the, the things I said I cared about, the priorities that I said I had in my life didn't match up with my actions. Now, will I have gotten fired if I didn't go on that shoot? Probably not. I highly doubt it. But whether I was being pushed or not, I made a decision to say, hey, leading this shoot is more important than being a being there for my son's birthday. And a lot of people don't want to look in the mirror, but that, that was a factual decision I, I made and sure as work and all I had to. And that's all bull, man. And the reality is, is that I didn't want to, I felt like I had to, but I was in a box. And I think too many people put themselves in a mental box where we let our jobs and our careers dictate what we do. You know, you stay up late to grind for a work presentation, but you won't stay up late to grind on something that could move your family forward, you know? So I just think you have to allow yourself, you either figure it out yourself or you get punched in the face one day when you're sitting there on set or sitting in a meeting or sitting in a presentation and, and missing the things that you want to be a part of. Doctors yeah. do this too, you know? I mean, same thing, right? You big time doctor, but you're on call and you're missing family functions because you're on call. And so it's, it's that thing where we, we say we work for money, but for most people, um, their career comes first and their family and other things come second. And if you're being honest with yourself and you truly look at how you spend your time and how you prioritize, uh, you'd probably find that that's true for you too. Yeah. I think money is a tool. It should be leveraged to live a more intentional life. And more intentional life to me means pursuing the activities that you enjoy, that you want to be a part of, whether that's hanging out with your uh, friends, whether that's being present with your kids, whether that's going to cure cancer. Money is a tool to help you leverage, have your financial situation under control. You can say things like, no, I'm going to take this vacation or be more present with your children, things like that. I would encourage listeners out there as a first small baby step going down this path, find a bill in your life, whether it's your home bill, your mortgage, your car payment, your cell phone bill, or whatever, and find an investment vehicle that spits off a cash flow or return that pays for that bill. 
And once you start to see the power that that has, you start to be more cognizant of how you can actually invest and buy back your time because you're not having to work for the mortgage payment, the car payment, the cell phone payment, things like that. That's a great tip. And that goes back to when we talked about house hacking, why I thought it was so powerful because your housing is really the biggest expense for most Americans. So if you can get another resident to pay for your housing, man, you are now off on the right foot. And for us, that was such a powerful tool. And yes, listen, I'd love for you to invest with us in our syndication deals. But if you're in a position where you can house hack, if you're, you know, you don't have kids and you can be flexible and you maybe if you're renting still, if you're renting still, you absolutely should do this. But I just think it's a powerful way to get started. It's for the reason you said, if you get to the point where you go from spending whatever, 1500 bucks, 2000, whatever it is you spend in rent and someone else is paying that and you're just living rent free now, first of all, you freed up 1500 bucks or whatever that is. Now you understand the power of, well, if I get another one, well, that'll cover my car and that'll cover this and that'll cover my right? And that is just an empowering thing. And if you do that, now you start to understand how to buy back your time, as you said, and it just becomes a, a really driving force for you. So I, I just think it's really important to, to think about it that way. And I love the way you set it up. 100%. So John, this has been super impactful for me. We've talked about marketing, we've gotten into a lot of mindset stuff that I really enjoy talking about as well. I want to transition us to the uh, last five questions that we ask everybody. We're calling this the five toppings moving forward, the five toppings for everybody out there. Um, the first one is what's your favorite book or what book have you read recently that's kind of impacted you? Um, Atomic Habits. I'll give you two. Atomic Habits is the first one uh, by James Clear. It's a phenomenal book and it really just breaks down how to make the tiny changes to become the kind of person you really want to be. And I, I just have never read any book on goal setting and, you know, all of that stuff, transformation. I haven't seen it written as simply as James does in his book. And I think it's just a phenomenal book. I have four copies of it, including my Audible, and um, I've given it away. I've given away probably ten copies or so, and uh, I just think it's a great book. the The other one I would recommend is "Can't Hurt Me" by David Goggins. Uh, the audio book is actually I would highly recommend that because he does like a podcast. So he's like he, he reads a chapter and then he does a podcast where he's literally explaining the book in more detail and goes more granular into what he was thinking and what was going on. It's a long read if you do that one, because it's like 12, 13 hours. But I just think it really helps you understand the mental capacity of what you're able to do. And uh, it's a fun read too. I mean, he, he's got an interesting and fun story. So if you want to laugh a little bit and just go through his pain, uh, um, it's a good one to check out. I love Goggins. I am a guy that does Ironman triathlons and long distance running and long distance cycling and putting myself in very suffering situations just to see how I'll act. I love that part. And so somebody was telling me, you got to find this guy, you got to listen to him and all this kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, he lives in Nashville. And I'll be daggummed if like two months later, right after I learned who David Goggins is, I'm sitting in a parking lot and he just runs by me like a like a beast. And that was so cool to hear his story and then see him in person like that. Um, and then you the, didn't start running after him. I should have, but dude, he, he's a beast. I was worried. I was worried. Uh, <laughs> he probably, he probably would have made him nervous too. Some dude just started <laughs> running behind me. I'm yeah. like, yo, or Gump style. We'll just start a group running behind him. Uh, the second question I have is 
I believe the person that you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day. The Atomic Habits is one of my favorite books as well. What is something that you do every single day? That's a great question. One thing that I do that I would encourage people to do is affirmations. And I will tell you, I'm not the affirmations hokey pokey guy. Like I, that's not my thing. Like I didn't get it. I remember I was at a presentation. This guy said, oh, you you do affirmations. You look in the mirror and you tell yourself, I am a multimillionaire. I am attractive. I, and I'm like, man, you lying. Like wh who does this work on? And I was always turned off on affirmations because it just didn't make sense to sit there in the mirror and lie to yourself on things that you know aren't true. However, what I have done for my affirmations is I've figured out how to highlight things that are true about me, but I need to remind myself of every single day. So for me, and I'll share this with your audience, okay? I normally don't share this, but I'll share this with your audience. For me, I have to look at, and it's the three things I, I feel like I have to tell myself because it's the three things that could hold me back in that day, okay? So I tell myself that I have the discipline, the energy, and the creativity to create abundance in my life. And the reason for that is, one, we talk about the discipline. Well, that starts with waking up in the morning, right? That alarm clock goes off or whatever it is you need to do, you discipline or not. So I have to tell myself, you have the discipline to do this, John. That's an easy thing you can do, okay? When you talk about the creativity, well, we get problems all day long. You know, you've got to figure out how to solve them. The people who win are the people who solve problems. So whatever life throws at you, don't moan and whine about it. Figure out a way to solve it. And then the the energy just comes down to the way I carry myself. It's eating the right food. It's making sure I drink plenty of water. It's making sure I'm present for my kids and I'm not just laying around tired, but I can, you know, have the energy. I can stay up if I need to write a paper or whatever it is making sure that, hey, you have the energy to do that. Get out of your mind. Just what we talked about David Goggins, right? Get out of your mind. You can do it. Just get your ass up and, and do whatever needs to get done. So those are three things I tell myself. And I think affirmations from that lens has helped me tremendously because that's more attainable to me than looking in the mirror and trying to describe the person who's not there. Yeah, I will never be able to affirmation myself into being a good looking gentleman, right? But I believe that affirmations really help you put on top of your mind what you're really looking for or the person that you need to remind yourself to be that day. And it's amazing what kind of things pop in your life when you're really looking for them. I was having this conversation last night. I don't have a problem finding opportunities. I have a problem with there's so many opportunities in my life trying to figure out which ones they are because I'm out there looking for them, because I've educated myself on looking for opportunities, et cetera. So I 100% agree. If somebody's out there not doing affirmations today, don't tell yourself that you're the next Calvin Klein, you're going to be a good underwear model or something like that. But you can tell yourself, hey, these are the great qualities about myself. And I want to remind myself of that. And you'd be surprised how much of that comes to your day every single day because of that. The third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I was in Chicago. I had an opportunity to go to GM, which obviously, you know, the end of that story, I, I took it. But when I was making that decision, um, my this my boss's boss's boss, so like the vice president of the entire team, um, I, I sought him out and I said, hey, look, I love it here. I'm in Chicago. I always wanted to come to Chicago. I don't want to leave, but this is, seems like an opportunity that I, I should pursue. What what should I do? What are, your, what are your thoughts? And he sat me down and he said, listen, don't make a decision off of money. Like we can figure out the money. Okay. So don't worry about the money. He said, ask yourself, what would you regret? 
and make your decisions based off of what you would regret, not what the potential outcome could be, because we can't predict it. And you have to make decisions based on the information you have today, but you don't want to walk around and regret not trying something. So ask yourself simply, would you regret not taking this job and seeing what would happen? Or would you regret not staying here and seeing what that life or that path could do? And that made it really clear for me as far as what my decision was going to be. It's the same way I got made my decision to get married. I know some people have like a great decision, like, oh, I met her and fell in love. And we, we did that. But um, I just I just kind of grew up with a different, more practical lens on, you know, how things end. And um, I always made a decision, say, listen, if for whatever reason it didn't work, I know that I would be, I can live with that. I could not live with not trying to see what life we could build together. And, I, and same thing with investing. Ask yourself, if you're thinking about a deal, if you're thinking about moving into something, would you regret not pulling a trigger and investing and seeing what kind of life you could have created for your family? Or would you regret, you know, doing a deal? Like you can do a deal and not, ma not make money and have it go bad and, you know, chalk it up as a lesson learned or whatever. But you got to ask yourself, what would you regret? And that, that lesson has really helped me make all my decisions in my life. Love it. I, I don't, I can't even add anything to that because I love it so much. Um, the next one is, what are you the most proud of in your life? I'm proud that I've never quit. It's something that is really important to me. Um, you know, trying to be as, as present as a father as possible, um, trying to be a present husband, trying to be a present investor, um, you know, just not quitting. And I think that's something that I've always hung my hat on, no matter how tough times get, uh, try not to quit. So I really value uh, just quite frankly, being resilient and continue to try and not shooting for perfection, but, you know, just showing up every day is half of it. <laughs> so just literally showing up every day is half the fight. So not quitting is really the biggest thing I'm, I'm proud of. Yep. Yep. It's uh it's about the journey, not the destination and not quitting builds you a muscle and a person that you can be proud of. So I, yep. Love it again. Last one is if you could eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? The rock man. So it's funny because I was a huge wrestling fan. I wrestled in high school. And when I talked about the not quitting, I was going to tell the story, but now I'm going to tell it. Um, I, I lost every match my freshman year. Right. So, I, I mean, the, the rest, the, hic the history books show that I won four matches, but it was against by forfeit, you know, <laughs> uh, like I didn't beat if, if another person stepped on the mat, I lost. Right. And my grandmother, my loving grandmother, woman who inspired me for, with everything. She was like, why do you do that? You should just quit. And I was like, no, I can't quit. Why couldn't I quit? Because some dude in band told me I wasn't going to make the team and I wasn't going to, I wasn't tough enough. And I'm like, no, nah, I got to prove him wrong. So anyway, they used to joke because around this time was when The Rock and, and WWF was like getting really popular or whatever. And um, they they called me, uh, they called me like Little Rock. <laughs> and, uh, and for me, it's funny because I, I've watched what he's been able to do from, you know, a scripted, you know, wrestling to becoming this, this megastar and he really laid out that plan and you know and he talked about you know what it was like for him to make that transition and i and the reason i say now is because that man works extremely hard today and he is very inspirational for me from that standpoint because um you know, I mean, he, he did a video not too long ago where it's like 2 a.m. He's like, yeah, I just finished my last workout. And I'm like, what? 
Like he's like, yeah, if it was the last workout and I got to eat this. And, and it just, it's a reminder of what it takes to truly succeed, not just his physical body, but the work he puts in. And I think a lot of times we think that, or we find people who maybe do something great for a little while and then they get the, the, the uh, residual impact of that. But this man is still working extremely hard as if he has nothing. And I, for me, like on nights when I don't want to write and I just want to go to sleep, it's a reminder to say, wow, you know, like this is what it takes to be on top and to stay on top. And I would love to sit down and, and talk to him about, you know, how he does that mentally, because, you know, so many wrestlers, so many entertainers, they rest on their laurels and you never hear from them again or they fall off or whatever the case may be. And just the way this man has continued to elevate himself, everything he's doing, I just think is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, a lot of respect for somebody who is super, super talented, but more aggressive in their consistency, in their work ethic. And they, he doesn't have to, right? I mean, he's to a stage now where he doesn't have to. Um, so yeah, I I also, my rock story is um, he he seems like a humble guy too. Like it doesn't feel fake to me because he still does these Instagram shout outs to people and things like that. And he did one to one of my high school teachers in a podunk town. I graduated with a hundred people. There was like 500 people that went to the high school in general. And he did a shout out to, to them because so many students hit him on Instagram asking for it. And so, I mean, not only to have the talent, the, the skill set, the, uh, the success that he's had, but to still send the elevator back down and do the right thing and the humble thing and the nice thing that would make someone's day is, is a character. I really like him. Um, and, and, and to your point, wouldn't you just enjoy it? Like, I mean, you, you're going to have a good time talking to The Rock. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. you'd, you'd have to catch him on a cheat day, though. And I worry, though, yeah. Don, uh, you only ate a pint and Rock's Oh, this was this is a quarter of a pint. This is okay. a quarter pint. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. The kids that already devoured most of this, I just wanted enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, The Rock's cheat day would be like 15,000 calories. So I don't know how much ice cream that is. Uh, but this has been Fantastic. It's wonderful to spend time with you. Learn about marketing, learn about submarkets, hear your story. And then I've really loved your answers to a lot of these five questions. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or um, talk to you, where, where's the best place we could send them? All right. So I mentioned the download earlier. Okay. So I got to give you guys that one. Uh, you can go to casmancapital.com slash 21 hacks. It's actually 35. I've updated it, but 21 hacks. And then um, the other thing we have available is a sample deal package. So if you're interested in investing, want to know what a deal might look like, whether you want to be active or passive, you can check that out at casmancapital.com slash sample deal. So I'll make sure we have the, the links for both of those as well. Awesome. Yeah. And your sample deal is a fantastic way to just understand how multifamily looks. And if I'm a passive investor, what you can expect. So thank you for that. Thank you for the amount of value you provided to our listeners today and the additional value with the links there. John, look forward to uh, having you back on the show again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.